welcome to the Redeemer Rockford Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm the host and also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And uh, I, along with all of our leaders, are recovering from an awesome uh, rooted retreat that we had this last week. We took about 154 total people out to Leaf River in Ogle County and had a two-night retreat, Um, just camping out. Some of us were intense. It was pretty intense. Um, Yes, that's a dad joke. I'm a dad now, so I could officially do that. Uh, But we had a great time. And uh, I brought one of my good friends, Andrew Hartung, out from Southern California. He attends my dad's church, and he's served in the youth ministries and the college ministries. And he's a teacher now at a private Christian school out there, and just a lover of God and His Word, and really gifted at teaching the Bible. And so we looked at the topic of holiness all weekend long. And so what you're about to hear are sermons from our Rooted Retreat delivered by Andrew. And so I hope that you're encouraged by them and that they only bolster your faith and build you up in the knowledge of Jesus Christ so that you may behold him, love him, treasure him, and live for him. Thanks for listening. Well, I hope none of you froze to death last night. I, uh, as you have heard, I am from California, born and raised in a pretty hot part of California. In the last two years, I have lived in San Diego, which is basically sunny 300 days a year, and it's like 75 degrees. So I've acclimated to a very neutral temperature. So I will be the person that is overdressed all week, all weekend. Uh, I slept pretty comfortably, though. You know, I had a great sleeping bag by a JT gave me. If I brought my own, I would probably not be here this morning to tell the tales of it. So, did anybody stay up all night? Oh, bless the Lord. There's always somebody. Praise the Lord. You guys stayed up all night? Were you also the one hitting the log this morning with a stick? I think they, I think they lost it overnight. I walked out, and I was like, what is that sound? And it was just... Full swings at a, at a log, and I, I don't know, could not deduce what that was all about or why, but I guess it's adding up. You stayed up all night. It seems like a reasonable decision if you hadn't slept. So, you know, guys, this, this week, the, the goal this weekend in talking to JT, what do we want to discuss? What do we want to bring to you? In part, what I want to do is reestablish the tension that the Old Testament establishes of the difference between you and God. The Old Testament has this beautiful way of making these promises and then setting the stage for these promises to seem so impossible to fulfill. God is a very good storyteller. And what's great about the Gospels, it's not just a story. It's reality. It's what God really did. And that even in the way he told the story, he set you up to see what kind of hero could possibly pull this off. And we as Christians, we talk about the Lord Jesus a lot, and we talk about what he's done. But sometimes it's good to go back and just say, where did we come from? Right? Why was the holiness of God, if you're a sinner, the holiness of God is a terrifying, terrifying thing. And so now we we lift our voices singing holy, and we praise God for being holy, as if it's good news to us, and it is. But how did that happen? 
I want to go back to the very beginning. When do you see the holiness of God being a fearful thing? Why don't you open up to the book of Genesis chapter 3. Unfortunately, in the history of mankind, it did not take long for our relationship with God to be strained. If you read slowly through the account of Genesis after the creation and God reflecting on everything that was good and then we're, we're right off the heels of God's first wedding that he ordains and the first song in the Bible where Adam sees Eve and says bone of my bones flesh of my flesh and finally someone like me a suitable helper and then right after this comes the serpent and Eve is deceived and Adam takes of the fruit this is the first time you see man afraid of their God. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. From the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, and I hid myself. It's almost so familiar that you miss the heartbreak of that exchange. God has made the garden as a gift to mankind to be stewarded, to be ruled, to be tended by mankind, and to be shared with them. To share God's presence, he was walking in the cool of the garden. It didn't say this was an odd thing to be happening. But for Adam and Eve, all of a sudden, it became a scary thing. It's the first example of the kind of encounter that we saw with Isaiah, where all of a sudden, man sees God, and the only thing they know is, I have sinned, and I'm in danger. I'm naked, I'm exposed before this God. What I want to do today to kind of show what lengths God went through to show you exactly how holy he is and what he really accomplished is to kind of do a walk through a little bit of the book of Exodus. What is the book of Exodus about? No trick questions. The Exodus, that's a great answer. Anybody know how many chapters are in the book of Exodus? You can look. I'll let you cheat. Just flip around. How many, how many chapters are in the book of Exodus? 40 chapters. Okay, so if Exodus is about the Exodus, which the title seems to imply, at what point in the book of Exodus do you think Israel has left Egypt? You would kind of think it'd be towards the end, the resolution of the point of the book. But by chapter 14, they're out of Egypt. And that's usually where a lot of sermon series and a lot of our Bible reading, we kind of lose steam. Once we're done with the plagues and we're, they cross the Red Sea, we're like, and that's about where I give up. But that's really where the story gets started. Because the book of Exodus is basically God saying, Israel, meet your God. Right? Because Israel's been in Egypt for 400 years. And 
we see God introduce himself to Moses. And what happens with the book of Exodus is it becomes a book where God shows Israel, I'm a God who saves. And I'm a God who calls you to obedience because I saved you. I'm a God who saves. Most of the book of Exodus takes place not in Egypt, not crossing the Red Sea, but at a, a very significant mountain in the Old Testament. Does anyone know what mountain that is? Mount Sinai. Most of the book takes place there. They're at Mount Sinai and they're receiving the law from God. So open up to Exodus chapter 3. Again, sometimes we're so familiar with a certain passage that we don't think about it for its oddities. Sometimes we're vegetal Christians. We know isolated stories to varying degrees of accuracy. And sometimes I wonder if VeggieTales help me or just harm my understanding of stories in the Bible. But we don't read the Bible and stop when things get weird and say, that's weird. But sometimes you're supposed to. You know, sometimes you read a book and you read something like the book of Genesis. And if you've ever read through the book of Genesis, you're going to read three different stories where Abraham or Isaac or Jacob lie about the relationship that they have with their wife and say it's their sister, and then they're blessed for it afterwards. And that is such a weird story. Why would it happen three times? And we don't even ask that question. This has nothing to do with the sermon today, so if you want to talk about it afterwards, I'd love to. But I just want to prompt you guys to be curious readers. But we have this encounter where Moses has left Egypt because he killed the Egyptian, and it says that he's keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. And while he's keeping the flock, he comes to Mount Horeb. And if you look at Genesis 3, verse 2, it says that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside, you see God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take the sandals off your feet for the place which you are standing is what? Holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was what? Afraid to look at God. Nothing has changed in the state of mankind since Adam. He's afraid to look at God. This little interaction that he has with God, it, Mount Horeb is another name for the broader region that is Sinai. So Moses on his own, he goes to this location. He sees God in a miraculous way. He's in the fire and it's something odd. It literally says, he's like, that's weird. I'm going to go look at that. And then God calls out to him and says, this is not a normal place. It's holy ground. Why is the ground holy? You can go to Sinai today. Should you take your shoes off if you show up? Why is the ground holy? Yeah, God's there. It becomes holy by his presence. Right? And one of the things God tells him in the same chapter, if you look at verse 12, after he tells him, you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to tell him, let my people go. He says that this will be a sign for you. That I've sent you, when you bring the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. 
Right? So he's telling Moses, this is going to be a sign for you to trust me because when I, I take the people out, you're coming back here. So if we fast forward to chapter 19, that's exactly what happens. Exodus chapter 19, Israel has left Egypt and they've come to Mount Sinai. It says in 19 verse 1, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So we can say promise fulfilled, right? God brought them there. But we see the significance that Israel is supposed to understand their God in these terms. God demonstrates his power at Sinai. Let your imagination just feel the way that this encounter is described. This is verse 16 of Exodus 19. It says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down to Mount Sinai, to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. There's so many crazy things going on here. You have this description of fire and smoke and lightning and thunder and a trumpet blast that is very loud. And then it says, and the trumpet blast grew louder and louder. And then Moses speaks, and God answers him in thunder and calls him up on the mountain. And what does Moses do? He goes up. A pretty terrifying spectacle. The people of Israel are astonished. And when Moses goes up, he gets two tablets. And what are these tablets from God? He gets the Ten Commandments. You guys went through the Ten Commandments recently, didn't you? He goes up, he gets the Ten Commandments. Now, it's interesting what the people say after this. Exodus chapter 20, they get the Ten Commandments. And again, in verse 18, it says, When the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were what? Afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They make an appeal to Moses like, Moses, please stand between us and God or we're going to die. So Moses goes up on the mountain. He goes up on the mountain again. He comes down. He talks to the people. Again, they make the same appeals. Don't let us have direct contact with this God because we'll die. And in chapter 24, it says, Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. 
And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So what happens is God is demonstrating to his people how terrifying his presence is. Right? Israel is like, this is awesome. We got out of Egypt and God did all these miraculous plagues to save us and nothing ever affected us. We saw him kill our enemies. And in chapter 15, they're singing a song about God, the warrior who fights for them, who's miraculous and glorious. And then when they're brought to the presence of their God, they're like, hold on a second. This might be bad for us. Right? This is dangerous for us. How are we supposed to live with this God? And Moses goes up on the mountain. And while he's up there, he's having what you might call a mountaintop experience, right? He's in the presence of God, getting the law, receiving information on how are we supposed to live with this God. And one of the things God promises him becomes a little bit of a head scratcher for us. If you look at Exodus chapter 29, Moses is still on the mountain, still receiving the law. God makes a promise that he's going to repeat over and over and over again in the Old Testament that this is his desire, his goal. It says in Exodus 29, verse 45, he said, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So God says, my goal in taking them out of the land is to dwell with them. Right? And thus far, Israel's experience of being in the presence of God has not been a relaxing one. To have God promise that he's coming and he's going to dwell with them, there's a lot of questions. How is that supposed to work? We don't really even want to hear God's voice directly, let alone have him dwelling with us, living in our presence. And then, as I said, God's a great storyteller, even in the way that the narrative breaks your heart. When Moses is on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and God says, I want to dwell with you, this is going to be awesome, what is Israel doing? What do they think when, Israel, when Moses is gone for 40 days and 40 nights? What do they think happened to him? He's dead. Like He's gone. Have you seen that mountain? It's on fire. He just walked right into it. They haven't heard from him in over a month. And so they go to Aaron and they say, make us a God. After receiving the Ten Commandments, the earliest of which are all about no other gods, do not make idols. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Right? God says, I'm the one who saved you. You should have no other gods. And in Exodus 32, they fashion gods for themselves. And worse than that, they attribute to these gods the work that Yahweh did. They say in verse 4, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses up on the mountain tells, or God tells Moses about this. He says, right now, your people have made for themselves false gods. He says, now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. God says, Moses, I have a proposition. I'm going to kill all these people. I'm going to consume them, and we're going to start over with you. And Moses does what the people ask of him in the sense that he mediates. He makes an appeal. He says, God, by your own namesake, 
For the sake of the fact that Egypt is going to think you saved these people just to destroy them. And the fact that you promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, please don't destroy them. And God relents. He doesn't destroy them. But when Moses goes down, him and Joshua, they hear what sounds like the sound of war. But you know what it really is? It's a worship service to false gods. It's such a commotion that they say it sounds like a battle is going on. And they go down, and what Moses does is he rebukes them, he burns the golden calf, he grinds it up into powder, throws it in water, and makes the Israelites drink it. His anger, it says, burns hot against them. And then he tells the Levites the next day, he says, who's on God's side? Go and kill your own brothers and your own sons, the ones who did this. And the Levites learn exactly what it means to represent God, that they have to be zealous for God's holiness being honored. And so the price is getting awful high. There's a tension. How are we supposed to dwell with this God? This God consumes us in our sins. This is very important. I want you guys to see this with your own eyes. Look at Exodus 32, verse 30. After Israel has been punished by Moses, not by God... Verse 30 says, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. He's not making any promises. He says, maybe, hopefully, I can atone for your sins. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now... If you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. So Moses says, God, please forgive them. And if you don't, blot me out of your book. Now, whether or not Moses is offering himself in their place, or whether he's saying, I so identify with this people, I can't bear the idea of them being destroyed, destroy me too. What God says in response to him ups the stakes. Verse 33, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. It says, Moses, there's a valuable lesson to learn here. It's not just this sin that they've committed. Everyone who sins against me, I will blot out of my book. One of the results of this event is that God says to the people in Exodus 33, 3, that I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way. He says, I'm not going to travel with you anymore. We're leaving Sinai. I'm not going to be in your presence lest I consume you. He says, you're a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked. I'm trying to direct you like an animal and you are fighting me. You're not taking my direction. You're a stiff-necked people. And he said, if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. If I was with you for one second, it would not be to your benefit. And one of the things that Moses does is he pleads to God. He says, is it not the fact that you're with us that we're distinct from the people? And he pleads with God. And do you guys remember this scene where Moses asks to see God's glory? And God basically says, Moses, 
I don't know if you haven't been around recently, but that would destroy you. Right? He says, please, Lord, let me see your glory. And God says, tell you what, I will put you in the cleft of a rock. I'll put you in an outcropping, a little hole, and then I'll put my hand over that, and then I will pass by facing the other direction. Right? I will seriously limit the exposure that you have. And what is the result when he does that? He walks past him. What happens to Moses after? Something changes with his face. Yeah, his face is glowing to such an extent that when he, other people see him, they're like, whoa, we're happy for you, but put a bag on your head. All right? Like, we actually, like, we can't look at you. It's like anyone that's ever, you know, worn one of those headlamps and you're talking to them at night and they have no self-awareness that if they can see your face, you can't see anything in the world. <laughs> Way worse than that. So they say, cover your face because we can't even see the radiant glory of God's very limited exposure to your human face. How much more the direct exposure of all of God's glory? Right? This is just the leftover on a, on a human of God putting him in a hole and covering with his hand and not passing him, facing him. Moses is seriously protected from what it could be, but it's still too much for people to even see after the fact. And one of the final things I'll mention just out of the book of Exodus is that it's after this that we're presented with God telling us more about his nature, more about his character than he's said in any one sentence before. He says in Exodus 34, when the Lord passed by him, it said that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. By no means will clear the guilty. How can God do this? How can God be a God who is patient and loving and forgiving? but will by no means clear the guilty. There is not a shot that the guilty are getting away. And this whole book of Exodus, I, I like to think of it as it's basically the, the pathway to the law. God sets the exact tension that Israel's to remember. They need to know exactly how dangerous their God is in their sins. And God establishes the law, but it's not a thing that can change their heart. It's basically just a guardian, just to protect them a little bit from the effects of their sin. And what's interesting is the book ends, Exodus ends, kind of sad, in a way you wouldn't expect. Moses goes back on the mountain and he gets the law again, because when he came down the first time and saw them worshiping the calf, what did he do with the law? Boom, he smashed it. And God said, I'll replace that. He writes it again gives it to him, but then when Moses comes down and God's presence goes into the tabernacle, this place that God said, I'm going to dwell, not even Moses can go in there. That's how the book ends. It's like, and now what? If Moses can't go in, what is our hope? And it introduces the book of Leviticus, which if it's your favorite book to read devotionally, good on you. <laughs> right? But part of the book of Leviticus is supposed to show you how strenuous it is to live under the law. 
exactly what does it take. It is costly. It is difficult. It is specific. And if you violate the specific rules of the law, you die. But it tells you truly about the nature of God. It tells you what does it look like not to thrive in the presence of God, but merely to survive it. You have to do all these things. And is God in the Old Testament zealous for the law? Well, there's over 30 reasons you could be put to death under the law. It shows us his nature. It guards and it guides, but it doesn't solve the problem. And one of the earliest lessons about how seriously God takes the law happens when the first high priest, Aaron, his sons, who are supposed to be in his family line, they're supposed to also be priests, they are basically commissioning a worship service, and it says that they offer unauthorized fire before the Lord. And it doesn't say more than that. Some translations say strange fire. It just means they did something that wasn't commanded. Right? We don't know. It doesn't say that their hearts were wicked. It doesn't say that they you know, snuck in something weird to the service. It just says they offered unauthorized fire, and God consumes them. And then God tells his, their father, do not mourn for them, lest you also die. God is so serious about his holiness that he says, when I give commands about how I am to be worshipped, you do not err the slightest inch. You do exactly as I say. There's another story where King David wants to bring the ark of God, the presence of God, into Jerusalem. It's, it's been way off in the wrong place for too long, and David's a good king. He says, let's bring the presence of God into Jerusalem. But Israel has forgotten the rules of how you move the ark. They've forgotten the rules of how you treat the ark. And there's this guy, his name is Uzzah. Has anyone ever heard of Uzzah? Uzzah is one of those guys that we feel very bad for. Because Uzzah is walking alongside a cart that is being pulled by some cows that it has the Ark of the Covenant on it. And it hits a rut in the road. And he's him, worried that the Ark is going to fall, goes to stop it. And what happens? God strikes him dead. And it's actually something that David struggles with. He struggles with the fact that God killed this man, and they just pause. They say, hold on, leave the ark. We need to go, we need to find the instruction manual. How are we supposed to move this? But he's frustrated. And sometimes we read those, and we stumble over the holiness of God. We're like, God, why wouldn't you just be merciful? He meant well. Right? It wasn't, didn't he think he was doing a good thing? But God is not a God to be trifled with. He's not a God who is unspecific in his holiness. The Bible says, don't mistake the mercy of God for your own goodness. Right? Just because you get away with sin, don't mistake that for God not caring. There will be a time when perfect justice will be brought to all injustice in the world. Another example of someone who faces the penalty is who we brought up last night, this King Uzziah, who goes in to worship on his own without a priest and is killed for it. And he has pride in his heart, but all the same, we learn valuable lessons about God from the law. And one thing I want to make sure we don't do is we don't look at the law and say that God was just making up overbearing rules to make a point. We said the law has 30 plus reasons you can be put to death. Well, God said in the garden, 
the day that you eat of the fruit, you will die. Ezekiel says that the soul that sins shall die. Exodus, we are just seeing that Moses was told that everyone who sins will be blotted out of the book. Romans reminds us that the wages of sin is death. All sin merits death before a perfectly holy God. So even the law is not the perfect, full exposing of God's standard to you. Even the law of the Old Testament. So the question becomes, how are we as Christians told to draw near to God without fear? We're told that perfect love casts out fear. But as a sinner, isn't fear the most natural reaction to have before God? Haven't we seen time and time again that fear makes sense? But then we're told that we no longer have a relationship of fear with God. If we're believers, we can have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. Confidence to draw near. We're told that he won't let the guilty go unpunished, that he wants to dwell with his people, but every time we've seen that happen in the Old Testament, it doesn't go so well for them. But all of a sudden, the Bible refers to you as those who are holy ones, beloved, saints, children, co-heirs, the elect. Right, all these very intimate names even that he's given to the church, to his children. And I want to draw that connection point of what did Jesus do? Jesus fulfilled the standard of the law. God didn't lessen the standard of the law or take off his requirement that you fulfill the law. He actually fulfilled it for you. You ever wonder why Jesus didn't just come to the earth on a Friday, die, and then raise on Sunday? Because there was more to do than just pay the penalty for sin. He had to fulfill all righteousness. He had to be made like us in every respect. He had to be tempted yet without sin. He had to live the life under the law, born under the law, that you never could. I was hoping one of those would happen at a very emphatic moment. That's pretty good, I guess. But Jesus came and he lived the life that you couldn't so that you could be called holy ones, beloved, the ones that God set apart. And the holiness of God is now something that we sing, hopefully, that we get to be a part of, that we get to be in his presence. And so the rest of camp... I'm not going to spend so much time just hitting you with what is the law, what is the standard of the law, but I want you to understand that our God has changed in no way whatsoever. So when he smiles upon you, when he looks at you for the work of his son, if you're a Christian, the Lord God, the Father, is not begrudgingly accepting you because of the son. Jesus says, because of what he's done, the Father himself loves you. The Father has smiled upon you from the day of your salvation onward. And sees you in the exact way that he delights in his son. In his son's perfect obedience. How different is that to the person who meant well and failed on the finest point and was put to death for it? How big is that gap? God has fulfilled actually his standard for you on your behalf. And as Christians, if that starts to fall dull on your ears, you need to turn back to an understanding of God that tells you exactly how much you don't deserve to be in that relationship. And you need to turn back to a view of Christ 
that actually makes you wonder. Why does the Bible refer to this as a mystery? Because it should be mysterious to us. It should rock our world. It should break our minds that the Lord has done what he's done. So it's very easy to forget. And let's not be those who forget. Let's remember the holiness of God as something that rightly, if we got what we deserve, would terrify us. But God has maintained a way to be just in the justifier. He has punished sin. And he has given you his righteousness. Let's pray.